Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Drunk Turkey Show. I'm your host, Daniel J. And alongside with me, as always, is Big Blue and Hyman. Um, first and foremost, I want to thank everybody who has subscribed to the show, liked the channel. Uh, we just hit 18,000 subscribers. Ooh. Thank you. Thank you. That's crazy, man. Remember we had like 586 subs, subs and they were talking to get even close to a thousand. Yeah, that was our goal early on. And, and we surpassed that. It's we've come a long way and, yep. and it's all because of you guys that watch and, and comment. And we appreciate you. And so, you so we had a call come in the other day. We released that call and um, a lot of questions and concerns have come out of it. Now, the person that called us in stated that she was, you know, um, had a daughter and a son that attended WSU and that they were, they had friends and a roommate that were close to the situation. Now, all we released yesterday was the uh, phone call that came in. There was certain validation that needed to be done in order for us to, well, one, to even put that video out and two, to make a second video out. And we were able to do so. I also want to comment on the fact that I did speed up her audio. Um, I sped up everybody's audio and um, the entire call uh, just so that it was a little bit quicker. I apologize if it was too fast. She wasn't on, on anything. I saw the comments. It was sped up. I did put in the comment section and I'll put it in again, the timestamp and the, uh, uh, the, the, the show that was the original call was on. But she called us. Her name was Kim, and she had called a couple of times, so I called her back. Um, she was from Washington State, and her last name looked familiar as far as I believe I had seen it come up in this case before. Mm -hmm. So that was the main reason why I wanted to call her back. I noticed the proximity of where she was calling from and then the last name. Now, what she had told me was that she had two students or children that were students at WSU, one was in law, one, one was taking a different um, major, and that the uh, the daughter, one was a son, one was a daughter, the daughter had a roommate whose boyfriend is a, uh, I don't want to say star athlete, but he is an athlete with one of, within the, one of the programs at the University of Idaho. I'm not going to put any names or anything like that because of the fact that some of these people still attend this school, and I don't want anybody going in attacking them for whatever it is that comes forward. Mm -hmm. And so what I was able to do and find was I was able to locate that athlete's social media page, trace who his girlfriend was and trace who her friends were. And it, it all came back. It all aligned. Um, they were they are roommates, um, the the girlfriend and, and the boyfriend and and everything checked out on that aspect. And so <clears throat> On the weekend of November 13th, this is the weekend of the incident, um, Kim and her husband were out at in Pullman, Washington, because it was WSU's um, parent weekend, right? And so they were actually there at the uh, in the city there. Uh, the following day, on the 13th, they end up getting a uh, notice of a stay in shelter around 5 p.m. Uh, Kim stated she called her daughter and her daughter told her that she was aware of the situation and that she had gotten information about the situation as early as 10 a.m. that morning. That is approximately two hours prior to uh, the 911 phone call that had gone out. Yeah. What she had stated was that 
her daughter lived um, or is part of Greek Row, and that her roommate, um, because of her association with her boyfriend, who is an athlete at the University of Idaho, um, was familiar with um, not just um, Greek and Greek Row in, 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 in Moscow, Idaho, but with um, the victims of the house. Um, she also stated that she that this guy was um, associated in at least a, an acquaintance of Jack and Adam. And so that's how close this conversation was. Mm -hmm. And so uh, apparently at about 10 a.m., they got word of a quadruple homicide that occurred at that residence. Now, this is a small town. This is rural Idaho. It's not Baltimore where there's a lot of people around and a bunch of, um, uh, you know, the community is, is large. This is a small community. I can almost assure you because we're, we, we come from a community probably roughly the same size. The news travels fast and sometimes faster than what comes to the police. Yeah, now, definitely. Steve Goncalves and their family um, had a, uh, a, a report, uh, or not a report, they went, they came out on a podcast here recently. Um, can't remember, it's Olivia. I'm going to apologize, Olivia. Uh, where they told them that residents of the uh, city of, or students of Moscow or, or University of Idaho had contacted them to let them know that there was a situation well before the police did and that they were aware and calling in and et cetera. So <clears throat> apparently in the wee early morning hours of November 13th, according to Kim, uh, calls started going out from the surviving roommates to Pi Beta Pi Beta Phi. I'm sorry if I broke that. Close up. enough. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> and I apologize. We 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 don't uh, we didn't attend any universities too. <laughs> this Greek stuff's a little bit new to me. So Pi Beta Phi, who was uh, I believe Maddie's and um, I think one of the roommates sorority that they were associated with that they got a call from the house and those were the individuals that were called summoned to the home for somebody that was unconscious on the second floor according to kim this was a house that was known um as a uh, a drug house a place where you can go pick up drugs uh, specifically molly and um that this was common knowledge. This wasn't something that was found out after the fact by her daughter. Her daughter stated that she was aware of that house being a party house, that house being a, a house where you can score some Molly or whatnot, and uh, and a house that was was well known. Now, one thing I'll say about this house is that there was a lot of turnover there. Uh, there was a lot of students that were moving in and out. Kaylee and and. Madison, I'm not entirely sure how long they were living in that house, but from my understanding, I think this was their first semester there. Uh, I could be wrong, but you correct me. And I know you guys will in the comment section. Uh, okay. Correct me if I am. But, um, you know, there was a lot of turnover. There was a report earlier of a guy who lived in that, uh, that same house that stated how you can hear things throughout the house. He recently li had lived there. And so... Uh, early on in this investigation, the police came out saying that this was a targeted situation, that they weren't aware, weren't, weren't sure if this targeted was the people inside the house or the house itself. And if that house at one point, maybe it's not, again, you know, currently or wasn't currently used as, 
a, uh, a house where you can score some drugs. At one point, it, it apparently was. Um, does this all make sense to you guys so far? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that makes sense. All right. So, according to to Kim and her daughter, the uh, the sorority girls got a phone call early in the morning, and that's kind of when the rumors started because um, they showed up and that there was an incident and that there was a situation there, and that's how it kind of spread out throughout town. Uh, apparently, the uh, the roommates had called. Uh, and this is speculation on their part as well, um, to clean up, maybe perhaps take out some of the uh, narcotics that were in the house out before the cops were called. Yeah. Um, is that what you guys gathered from her? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I felt like that's exactly what she was saying, that the, they, were, they went up there too. They were called to pretty much get rid of all the illegal substances. Yeah. Yeah. That's a theory that uh, that's why they took yeah. so long to call for help. All right. Now, also, everybody, the uh, uh, Kim had reported all this to the FBI. This is not something that is not known to the FBI. She, in fact, told us that there is a um, Idaho State Police officer assigned to them themselves yeah. uh, for their uh, accounts and what they had said. And so <clears throat> according to... Pam's daughter and what she gathered from her roommate, who was pretty close to the situation, that these both surviving roommates had seen three people outside the house at one point, mm-hmm. and they described one person as a creepy person, or as a creepy guy. That creepy guy is who ended up making entry into the house. Now, they were only aware of one person being visually seen inside the house, uh, but Again, this is speculation, speculate that there was possible there was more than one person that went in. It may have been two as one waited outside, um, which kind of makes a little bit of sense if there was more than one person. Reason being is if we were to pull up the, uh, the map here, initially the first time that um, Brian is spotted on camera or allegedly spotted on camera, is at 3.26 a.m. traveling westbound on the 700 block of Indian Hills. This is west of the neighborhood in which the victims had, uh, had resided in. I was curious as to why he would be going this direction so far out. He was seen going southbound and in and around Pullman around 2.47. Had he left and gone directly to this house here or this neighborhood, um, he should have gotten there probably around 3.10, 305, somewhere around there. And so there's about a 15, 20 minute window there that's unaccounted for. You know, we questioned as to why he would be in this neighborhood. Perhaps he was picking somebody up that lived in this neighborhood. A lot of you guys in the comment section stated that if you're uh, up here on this part of the, uh, the street here, you have a pretty good view of the police department, which you do right up here. Now, um, maybe perhaps that he came, stopped, wanted to see the activity that was coming out from the police department before he made his way out there. That's quite possible. I just find it like odd as far as the time goes, because at 326, he's here. At 328, two minutes later, he's seen traveling uh, across uh, the highway on Steiner 
um, towards the residence. And so he went from this address directly and at 329, he spotted in front of the home. So he went from this address directly to the house um, out of this neighborhood. Now, does that give you enough time to stop, take a view of the, of the police department, um, understand what's going on, know what's happening? Now, the other thing that I could possibly think of is maybe perhaps 3 o'clock, 3.30 is shift change. Maybe he's wanting to see if all the police officers are back in, uh, knows he's probably got about a 20-minute window to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's roughly about the time that uh, that shift change would take. Now, that's if... Their shift changes like at four in the morning, three thirty. Who knows? But he's coming in from this direction versus, you know, Washington coming in from this direction. Perhaps he he dropped somebody off. The other thing is, he was pinged at four forty eight, about ten minutes south of Moscow. So had he li- left here at four twenty as indicated, um, as he was seen on Willan to drive at a high rate of speed. This should have he should have been around here around maybe 435. And so there's about a 13 minute window in which he's not seen. Now, perhaps maybe he was dropping somebody back off in this direction. Cool. Speculation. That's not what she said. That's just kind of what we were coming up with based on the questions that we had from the probable cause affidavit as far as where this was located. Yeah. So. She stated that they, they saw a creepy guy. The creepy guy went in, um, was in the house. The surviving roommate saw the creepy guy uh, in the house, which all coordinates with uh, the information that came out on the probable cause affidavit. Apparently, they were aware of this during, um, you know, couple, within a couple of days of this incident occurring. And so this is uh, this leads me to believe that at least some of this information that they got was accurate. Now, I explained to her, just like I'm going to explain here, is that when you have a story that's passed on from one person to another, uh, sometimes it has a tendency of that story getting bigger and bigger and more exaggerated. So there's a possibility a lot of the information that she had given us was exaggerated. However, there was a lot of truth in there and a lot of. a lot of things that we had heard before, such as the possibility of drugs being involved. And, you know, they knew and were aware that there was somebody inside the house and that they were seen um, before anybody else was aware of this. Um, do y'all have questions about that? Did I cover that up correctly? Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you when you said about the, you know, the stories going hand to hand, it's like the, the fish story, right? Yeah. It starts off this this the fish, and then before you know, it's 20, 20 pounds. It just you know what I'm saying. So like, if it, it, it'll be a different story, like I said before, you know, if we were hearing it from the, you know, from the person that actually witnessed it, it'll be a different story. But yeah, we gotta just at this point just take it as speculation. Right. Yeah, we can, we can take it to speculation till the hearing start, and I wonder if the defense or prosecutor is gonna call the roommates up. To hear the truth yeah i mean there's one thing about the problem cause affidavit is it really doesn't go into what bethany's statements are all yeah, it talks yeah. about is Dil- dylan's statement and the only statement that it says about bethany is that um that she was home and that um the roommates were home and in their rooms by 4 a.m that's basically the extent of what she had stated um yeah. as far as what they released i'm sure there's more to it 
-hmm. Now, what she had stated was that uh, Dylan had seen three people outside from the first floor and that she locked her room. Um, if you remember the uh, probable cause affidavit had mentioned something about that she originally was in her second bedroom or in the second floor bedroom. We had questioned why the term originally was there. Um, like I said, some of this could be exaggerated and little bits and pieces misconstrued. Mis misconstrued. We have, uh, we've got, we had, I had a conversation with this lady for two hours the night of the, uh, of the phone call. And then we had another hour conversation and basically all we are trying to get is what we know or not know, but what we can figure what was told to her and not, not things that puzzle pieces were trying to be put together. And so um, she stated that when the probable cause affidavit came out and that um, Dylan was on the second floor, they questioned their, their daughter who then called her friend in front of her and asked her about it being different. And um, they weren't, they didn't have an explanation for it. They said, that's not the story that we were told. Um, but again, some facts, some minor facts can be changed. Um, now, do you guys, am I missing anything? I'm in blue before we move on to the son's comments. No, man, I'm, I'm it's just seems like, you know, if if this is the case that this house was targeted, maybe not the the the, the residents inside the house. Um, uh -huh. if that's the case. Um, Ethan Ethan wasn't you know living there. It was just uh -huh. it was just bad luck on his side, right? Uh -huh. um, if there was Ethan, if he was awake and let's say Brian or whatever, right? Uh, he he saw Brian. I think if he was awake, he would have a lot more um, defensive uh, wounds on him. You know what I mean? Right. There's a much better chance of defending him off than than maybe you know a smaller person. You know? Right, right, yeah. Because this guy Brian doesn't look like he's a big guy. Even the description from what Dylan put out there, he seemed like five foot ten, hundred and eighty five pounds, average size. And so uh, I believe Ethan was a much taller guy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she didn't. She didn't say whether or not anybody was awake during the time, but we can, you know, one thing that she did mention, and we'll kind of go into it right now, is that she has a son, WSU, who was, uh, you know, pre-law and was taking law classes. And his classroom is actually right next to the classroom that Brian was a TA at, a teacher's assistant. And so they have a family friend um, who is in Brian's class now. You know, we asked her, "Is like, hey, did your son see him? You know, make any contact with him?" And she said, "No, not really. She had seen he had seen him, but um, really never made contact with him. Didn't talk to him or any of those things." But then stated that her friend, um, her their family friend, who's also a friend of her son's, is is somebody that does attend their class, his class. And you know, she said a lot of the same stuff that um, she told them that he, you know, was difficult when it came to grading kind of kind of kind of a hard ass so to speak and then and after the situation everybody was getting a's things like that so it wasn't anything too far uh, different um however we asked her is like hey uh did he have any marks on him did he have any um, bruising scratches anything that would indicate him that he was possibly involved in an altercation and she said no that they 
they basically, you know, that this lit this girl, this student stated that there was no sign of anything as far as scratches, marks, bruising, any of those things on him from what they could tell. He also had a physical done a few days after uh, the incident, right, where he went to a doctor, had, a, had his routine physical. Um, if he was a second person in there and Dylan did not describe him full of um, she did. She said she saw a dark figure with a mask. She didn't say that she saw somebody full of blood or any of those type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible that she saw um, Brian, but Brian perhaps was the second person in there and maybe not the person actually committing the assaults, but was there watching, documenting, doing, um, you know, uh, trying to understand the commissioning of a crime as from the point of view from a close point of view, what do you guys think? It's it's uh it's plausible um, because like at the in the affidavit, she noticed that he had black clothing, uh, mask right to the cover his Just, nose and mouth. Right, that's all it was and, described as. But he, she didn't notice the a knife. Uh, she didn't notice uh, well the blood. You wouldn't be able to notice blood that much with black clothing. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, that is, you know, you have to really look at it. But yeah, when it's on black clothing, you can sometimes see it, but it looks more like black, like something smeared on it. But then yeah. like you know, right away. Yeah, so it, it that could be possible that he he was in there just maybe Watching checking it out. Yeah, could be. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the caller has no doubt that Brian was involved. Um, and it kind of answers some questions if somebody else was involved with him along with him you know he made the statement about you know did they arrest anybody else in the recent documents that were released they were asking about any co-defendants things of that nature mm-hmm. um <clears throat> she did state that there was a change in the story um between the the roommate of the daughter and the boyfriend they stated that on the night of the incident, um, she dropped her daughter off at her off-campus sorority house and that the roommate wasn't there. The The daughter then later told her that the roommate and the roommate's boyfriend were both there and then that, um, uh, I guess, a week later or whatever, um, the statement changed that the roommate, the, the boyfriend of the roommate wasn't there. Right. And so she dropped a mom. She, she kind of rephrased that again. Uh, mom dropped off daughter at her off campus house. Um, she was she knew the roommate. She'd been friends with the roommate. And I'm talking about the mom and stated that when they go into town, they usually talk to her, whatever. Um, she wasn't to their knowledge, wasn't there. After the incident, uh, her daughter had told her that both the roommate and the roommate's boyfriend were at her house and they spent the night there. It was later found out afterwards that the uh, boyfriend's roommate wasn't there and he was back in Moscow at the time, possibly, possibly um, with JD. It's possibly that. Um, and that mom, Kim, called the FBI and the police and let them know that, hey, my daughter's story has changed. She said first initially that the roommate and the boyfriend were there. 
And now she's saying she's not aware if the boyfriend was there. He could be back home. And um, they felt a little bit, I don't want to say uh, suspicious of the boyfriend, uh, mm-hmm. but they didn't feel com- she didn't feel comfortable that his story had changed and that um, he had a, he knows apparently the sorority girls that were called to the house that morning. Right. And so she called the police with that information and the police told her that a lot of stories had been changed and that there was a lot of lies that were going on and that they weren't surprised by that. Um, if this place, and, and she, she had accused this place of being a possible place where you could score some narcotics. She mentioned a couple of other places that were both in Washington and in, um, in Moscow and uh, Pullman, Washington, that were associated with possible narcotic uh, activity. Um, and so, you know, I, I thought I should bring that aspect up as well. Um, but for the most part, just to kind of wrap everything up, the information that she was able to obtain was that they saw somebody in the house before anybody else knew that they had saw somebody in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, she stated that the sorority girls from Pi Beta Phi are the ones who were called that morning um, to go over um, whatever it is that they were supposed to have gone and cleaned up or, or done is why they were called. And that her daughter was aware of the situation before the 911 call was called in, uh, possibly because the sorority girls started to send text messages, make phone calls, things of that nature. Rumors starting to spread, um, which honestly drives more questions for me that so much of the uh, students and, and, and people close to the situation uh, or close to the uh, the victims knew about the incident before the 911 call was made. I think that's kind of concerning. She stated that there was multiple people outside of the house before the incident and that um, it's possible at least two people made entry into that house. Uh, she stated that um, that her son and her son's friend or their friend who attend WSU in the law program, one of them, uh, was a student under Brian and that he didn't have any visible marks uh, shortly after the incident. Am I missing anything else? No. no. And so I think this is stunning and new details because one, nobody knows who was called that morning. Two, you know, uh, Brian has been kind of throwing it out there that there's a possible second person involved. And, um, you know, we get a we get an understanding of what was going on throughout the uh, the students there. I mean, when you have a close knit community like students from a particular college or university, um, that information is going to spread like wildfire. You know, the smaller the town, the, the, the faster the news travels. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's just the way things are. Like I said before, this is in Baltimore. Uh, it's not a big place where, uh, and even at that, I mean, we, me and Blue currently live in a city that has probably close to 2 million people. And within that area, the, the city is broken up to what we feel like are small little towns. And so 
you know, within those small communities, news will travel fast. It may not travel from one end to the other end very quickly, but within that small community, it does. But um, do you guys have any um, last comments about this before we put a bow on it? Um, when it comes down to the fact that people already knew what was going on, even before they called 911, it just shows that something is uh, a little suspicious about that, man. You know what I mean? Something's wrong on that and that aspect, you know what I mean? I mean, right. if it was someone else and they found that, they would call right off the bat, you know? They wouldn't wait hours on end. No. I mean, I, I completely understand what you're saying. You know, she, um, they were scared and frozen, but still were able to make phone calls to, to somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, so the capability and the culpability there to make a phone call was, was present. Uh, before we go, Blue, question for you. You know, yeah. this occurred at four in the morning. Police were called at noon, so about eight hours later. Um, your medical uh, field experience, uh, what would have happened to those bodies? I understand that there's rigor mortis, things like that would have occurred in this time. But what about any, um, would the smell start to kick in? Would um, What would they have noticed that would have made it uh, obvious that these people were not just passed out? Because I can tell you, I've seen a body in my profession or our former profession uh, that has been passed for eight, 10 hours and they don't look the same. Like like where the blood sits, the things of that yeah. nature. I mean, it's, the, it's no more colder up there. So I don't think there'd be any smell right away. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, that takes time for, I think, um, I mean, but sometimes you can smell blood. You, they might smell blood in there. Mm -hmm. That's got that's got a certain smell, but um, I mean it would just depend on how many times it got stabbed. There'd be blood everywhere. I mean, I, I would say smell. I'm not sure. Right, but physical appearance would they have? Um, like I if mean, they, they were somebody old, they would have turned kind of pale, start turning grayish. You know, that's what they would see when they would look at a person. So maybe they would look passed out if they don't see the stab wounds if they turn them over. Hmm. What about bowel movements? Yeah, would they have created a bowel movement or depth? Uh, depth? Yeah, I can't remember. I, I think some some bodies do release. Yeah, I've 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 seen that where the bodies release, they defecate uh, upon decease, and so um, that's true. But you know, I had a situation one time where I went to a call and there was a guy who had passed. He had fallen asleep, uh, and he was intoxicated and threw up and passed away like that. Um, when we turned him over, this had been probably about seven hours after he had passed when we got there. Rigor, rigor mortis had already set in. And so um, for those that don't know what rigor mortis is, this is where the body uh, stiffens up. Um, blood had pulled into, uh, had gone downward. So blood's not pop, pop, blood is not pumping or circulating anymore. So it kind of gravity does its, its, its deal there and blood will Sits. go, it'll sit at the uh, further south point of the body or where it's laid at. And in this situation, this guy fell asleep. He actually fell asleep like this in his uh, face forward. Um, but he covered, his friends covered his mouth this way. And so when he threw up, it didn't come out and he drowned. Uh, he was unrecognizable. Uh, this guy, uh, I had known of him. He was not a friend or anything, but I had seen him, had a couple of dealings with him. 
I couldn't recognize him. His face was swollen. One side of his face where the blood set was like, um, was distorted and it was swollen to that direction. And so, you know, I find it difficult to believe that if they're visibly seeing somebody that they would assume that that person is just passed out. There's there's a lot of clues there that that come across when you when you come across a body that has been deceased for that period of time. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And so, you know, not not we're not victim blaming or any of those things. You know, uh, one thing that you know Jaime had brought up when we were talking with Kim on the phone was that when somebody goes into shock or freeze, sometimes they they do things without knowing what they're doing. They just walk walk in a direction close the door sit there it's not just freezing in the moment there's you know until you're in that situation you you don't know what you're going to do and but with that said summoning friends over and those type of things prior to uh you know calling authorities is is a big question mark for me Uh, one of the things that kim did say is that you know She's um. She said, you know, more families lost their children, um, and then she just worries that it's not safe there for her children. So that's her worries. You know, that's one of her main things why she's calling and why she's doing this, mm-hmm. is to just make sure the community is safe. If there is somebody else, or you know, she, she's, you know, she said Brian was a monster, and that Brian um. Hopefully, you know, it comes out to be that he was the only person there. And he, if he did it, he goes to jail. You know, everything happens for um, just a judicial system. But, you know, as a parent, you know, you always want your kids to be safe. So I kind of see where she comes from. So we'll go from there. Oh, yeah. 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 And, well, you know, you know I'll, I'll say this, you know, listening to her story yeah. and, and and what she has to say and and answering some of the questions that I might have. Um, A lot of it can fit. A lot of it does fit. Uh, Some of it is, like I said, you can kind of, you got to weave in and out of what is added onto the story, just based on it going from one person to another and not coming directly from the source. Uh Um, But that doesn't mean that there's not truth in what she's saying. it may not be everything that she's saying comes out to be 100% true, but, you know, she got a lot of things right, you know, about, um, you know, the creepy guy inside the house, somebody seeing him, one of the roommates seeing him and locking themselves in the room, things of that nature. These were all things that they were, you know, they knew ahead of time. And like I said, we, uh, we did a we did our due diligence to make sure that this wasn't somebody who just claimed to know people. Um, she gave us names and um, an association, and we were able to go through there and, and validate those things. And I understand that that is you guys taking our word for us doing that, but I'm not going to put out their information just so you know it fills somebody else's need for information when it comes to who these people are. Um, all this has been reported again to the FBI and to the police department. So it's not something that is new to them, things of that nature. And like I said, uh, I just hope that this kind of clears up a couple things. Uh, 
with that being said, guys, I encourage you guys to hit that like and subscribe button again. Thank you all for, for doing that on the last show. Um, I would, if you guys, I would encourage you guys, if you guys would consider becoming a member, we, uh, we do shows, uh, that kind of talk about the breakdown and backstage look at what we do and how we put this case together. And we actually did one on this one. Um, so members, that one's going to be coming out probably in about 15 minutes after this drops. So, uh, uh, thank you again. Hit that like and subscribe button and uh, ring that notification. Do one, one quick shout out, or it's not a shout out, it's, it's an RIP, you know, shout out. I'm a, I was a big fan of Walker 69 guys, and uh, he passed away from a heart attack like three days ago. Y'all need to, if y'all want to see something funny, he does a lot of food tastings. He dresses up like the Joker, and he does a lot of uh, funny videos. He passed away from a heart attack, at, I believe, at 30, 39. So, you know, um, y'all want to check out his stuff. There's a lot of memorable, a lot of RIP videos going out for him and his family. Y'all take care. For sure, man. Rest in peace. And um, our condolences to not just that guy and his family, but also to the victims in the uh, in this situation and, mm-hmm. and to their families. Um Oh yeah, one last thing. Um, we we are going to be doing a collaboration with Truth and Truth and Transparency here pretty soon. They'll be coming out on the show. We'll be interviewing her, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about the case. So uh, I highly encourage you guys to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss it. That being said, we're the Drunk Turkey Show, y'all. Peace. Later. Do I look good in red? It's all you wear. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs>